I'm Evertrue CEO Brent Grinna, and this is The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Fundraising is in flux. Revenue's up, but donor counts are dropping. Phonathons are struggling and mass marketing isn't moving the needle. And our largest donors are increasingly feeling tapped out and they're challenging us to identify the next generation of supporters. But advancement isn't going extinct, it's being reinvented. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. Welcome everyone to today's episode of The Raise Podcast. I am thrilled to welcome my friend and our customer, longtime customer, Chris Campbell, to uh, today's show. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Brian. Excited to be here. Real subtle orange uh, throughout the Oklahoma State Foundation offices, and that is uh, reflected in, in Chris's uh, office. And the, uh, the pride and passion you feel when you're walking through Oklahoma State is really unparalleled. I've, I've been in a lot of advancement shops, and, and you guys literally wear it on your sleeve. So good to have you here. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Chris's background, career path, progression, and talk a little bit about innovation and the challenges and the opportunities around innovation in the advancement sector. Before we do that, I did want to share that Chris and I are both aspiring musicians. We are both trying to learn play, to, to play guitar. And in fact, we had recently had some Evertrue guitar picks made and they were somewhat inspired uh, by Chris. So how's, how's music going? What's new on the guitar front? So, you know, the last couple of days, I've actually, I haven't been practicing as much. I, I okay, started Stranger Things season three. So I had to get through that. So my wife, when I finished the last, she said, what are you going to do now? So I'm going to start practicing guitar again. But uh, it really, I, I'm terrible at it. Uh, the Evertrue picks do help, but it's, it's really something I enjoy. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been fun to talk with you on musician over that as well. So Yeah, yeah. So uh, in the spirit of innovation, both Chris and I are using an app called Musician, which is almost like Guitar Hero meets lessons. And it's competitive. It's social. Uh, and, uh, and we both are, are doing really poorly on that app right now. So, uh, uh, but, but reflective of uh, digital transformations affecting uh, even how music is taught. So uh, let's get into advancement. Let's get into why we're here today. Uh, you have come up the ranks uh, with a long career. I mean, you haven't been out of school all that long yet. You've come up the ranks uh, into a senior leadership position at Oklahoma State. Tell us a little bit about your career path. How did you end up in advancement? What age were you when you even heard or knew what the word advancement meant? I was probably 26 or something like that. Um, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about that trajectory. Well, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of great majors and a lot of great young people that are studying, uh, you know, fundraising, you know, philanthropy, and it's exciting to see that. But a lot of the, you know, the joke is you kind of stumbled into it or you fell into it. And I, I, I'm kind of the same way. Uh, Oklahoma State University graduate, uh, management information system in our Spears School of Business. Um, spent the first couple of years out of college um, in the, the, the private sector in, in IT and um, just kind of on a whim had heard about a gig back at OSU, actually working with our athletic department. We were in the process of um, totally, uh, essentially rebuilding our football stadium and um, just kind of applied for that job on a lark. Uh, and, and got it uh, by some miracle because I really didn't have a sales background. It was really more of a sales job. But um, it, it, so the way that was structured was we were the fundraising team for the athletic department. And so um, I, I've been a foundation employee, OSU foundation employee since the end of 2004. Did that for a couple of years, had a blast doing it, moved over to the business school where I graduated. So as an Oklahoma State grad, a fan, and now selling that mission, what was your favorite memory in the athletic sales? Anything really stand out during that project that's, or people you met or? That's probably where I have my favorite stories just because, you know, of what we were doing and the speed with which, but you know, there I have story, you know, there's a story where um, it was a prospect that, that my boss didn't think was, was really a prospect. So I call him on a Tuesday afternoon and, you know, he ends up doing a six figure gift over the phone so he can get floor seats in our, our uh, in Gallagher Ive Arena, our basketball arena. And uh, my buddy Shane, that he and I have kind of grown up here together in the organization, we were both working athletics. This was like at 2.30 on like a Tuesday. N neither of us were married, had kids. It was like, 
we will hop in a car and drive up to Southwest Kansas right now to come pick up. You don't need to mail this check. Let us come get it from you. And uh, he, he was such a nice guy. He would not let, he was like, there's nothing out here. There's nothing to do. I'll send it to you FedEx. And, and sure enough, the very next day we had a pretty significant six figure check from a guy we knew nothing about prior in the mail in our hands. And so there's a few other stories where my boss tried to convince some people that I was like the backup quarterback, which you know, it, that's a stretch at best, but uh, we'll save those for another conversation. Very cool. And so you're able to do that over the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that was a kind of a referral and, um, just a great opportunity to get someone on board. Very cool. Um, okay. So from the athletics, uh, work really, you're selling the mission, you're doing the work, you had this IT background. What happens next? Uh, so in athletics, uh, you know, it was kind of ready. I was ready to kind of make the jump. Um, to kind of you know full-fledged fundraising I think the joke in athletics is a little bit it's it's uh, it's um, maybe not full-fledged philanthropic fundraising because a lot of times you're selling seats or suites or tickets but um, still a great way and a great place to learn about that but jumped over to be a development officer for our business school and I was kind of the number two there uh, in our business school for a couple years um, and just really you know frontline fundraiser learned kind of the the basics the mechanics you know, a lot of cold calls, a lot of trying to build queries on my own in in, in our donor database. Uh, and this was certainly well before we had a tool like Evertrue. Um, again, because my background's IT, I was a little better at that, and I could kind of self-serve there. Um, so it allowed me to me, you know, maybe to ramp up a little bit faster. But um, yeah, that was really kind of where I got into and learned kind of what it would, takes to be a fundraiser and to kind of do that work. And from there, you're the gift officer writing their own queries. That's got to rub somebody the wrong way, but but you did it anyway. And and then uh, where do you go from there? Yeah, they, you know, I think some the wrong way, some the right way, because it was work they didn't have to do, or it wasn't another list they had to generate for another development officer. But um, our vice president at that time, uh, who was relatively new, had kind of recognized this marriage of me being a frontline fundraiser and having that experience, uh, and but also still having a very analytical and kind of pragmatic mind and with kind of that IT, um, um, you know, flair there. And sh she actually asked me to take over what was called development research at the time. Um, with certainly no prior experience, uh, it was a huge burgeoning department of me and one prospect researcher at the time. Um, and this was really at the start of our last comprehensive campaign. And so uh, we took over that group, development research, reworked it, grew the team, rebranded it prospect development really created, you know, prospect research and prospect management as, um, you know, teams within that department as we grew um, and went from myself and a prospect researcher to at one point in time had nine or ten people in, in all of prospect development. And so if you were to say, because we, we you know, we, we hear a lot of job titles, we don't always think about the deeper meaning. Prospect research, development research has been around for a long time. What is the difference between that and prospect development? And I think even at Evertrue sometimes, we probably use those expressions interchangeably. What's the difference? You know, and we do here too. We've had that team for eight or nine years and people still call it prospect research. And I think for me, it's really more that it's, it's much the difference between prospect research and prospect management. You know, here for us, we've got folks that are, you know, really working on a, it's kind of micro versus macro is how I typically look at it. Micro on the prospect research side is really digging into a, a prospect, a potential prospect or a donor to find out what we can about that person to set our development staff up for, for you know, whether it's a great introductory visit or even a solicitation. You know, on the prospect management side, we've gotten, I think, really good at that too, where we're really partnering with the development officers to make sure they're working their portfolio, they're working their pipeline, um, you know, Prospects aren't sitting stale in there for you know years at a time, uh, and so that's a little bit of how we look at it. But we continue to push that and and see how that's involving with especially with some of these new tools we're getting access to. And so it sounds like research or the historical approach to research is a little bit more reactive on the individual prospect level versus proactive on the overall portfolio. Hundred percent. And and this these numbers I just I've, I had Jacob send me these you know, dovetail nicely with our implementation of Evertrue. So in FY, uh, our FY17, 
we did about 110 what we would call proactive referrals. These are referrals that we're finding ourselves that, you know, the development officer's not coming to us and saying, hey, I need a profile. These are us giving fresh leads and fresh names. We did about 110 of those uh, in FY17. We just wrapped up our FY19 and we were uh, about 330, right? And so, you know, to, to basically triple that number, and, you know, I would say 90 to 95% of those are, are, are coming from the Evertrue platform because of the data that gets brought together and that we can marry with our own information. We knew, and when Jacob took over prospect development, um, you know, last year, actually two years ago, um, you know, the, the charge was we've got to be more proactive than reactive. And, and we're start, we're really seeing that shift. One of the things that has always struck me about working with you all is you are um, very quantitative and you're setting goals Everybody has goals for development officers, or at least they should. But it seems like oftentimes in that prospect management, prospect research realm, the goals might not be as hard. You have really hard, and, and I, say, I mean firm, clear, quantitative goals. Going from 110 proactive referrals to 330 proactive referrals this year. And then obviously the, the, the question is, well, what happens with those re referrals? And what is the pipeline that's created? And some of those might play out over 10 or 20 years, and some of those might play out on a Tuesday afternoon at 2.30, the way that you experienced in your athletic development uh, days. So talk to me about the goal-setting process around prospect development, prospect management. Is that common based on what you're seeing in the sector? Do you feel like you're on the front edge of, of that curve? I mean, I, if I surveyed your peer institutions, what percentage would even have proactive referral goals? I, I would say it's it's probably not many. Um, we're, we've been very fortunate here. Um, you know, we've had leadership over the years here, um, our presidents, our VPs of development that have certainly understood the value of prospect development um, to an extent where they're not necessarily having, um, they're not asking us to justify ourselves with these metrics and these goals. It's really just giving us something to focus on um, and, and, and targets to shoot shoot towards, right? Um, but, you know, we've, I will, I'll say we've, we've kind of struggled over so, the years I mean, with I those. Guess, Go ahead. Yeah, what I'd say is make the case. Make the case for your peers at other yeah. institutions maybe who aren't doing, because I do think that there's just this difference between are we a reactive organization or are we proactive? We're always going to be partially reactive because something triggers us to look up somebody. There's a wealth event. We have to go and do that research. But, but you know, how do you make the case for starting a proactive program? Well, it, it, it comes down to our ability to, you know, you can you marry the prospect research side with the prospect management side. And when you see portfolios that are kind of languishing where, where you've got stale prospects in there, you know you've got to have that influx. You've got to have that opportunity. And, and it's a bit of a two-way street because to be able to do the, the proactive piece, we actually have to cut back on the reactive piece, right? And so that was a you know, a deliberate conversation with the development leadership group and our development officers to say, hey, we're going to pull back on some of this stuff because we've created some self-service, you know, functionality. But, you know, what's you know, the, the, the metric I typically use is, you know, it's three or three suspects for one prospect and three prospects for, you know, potentially one commitment. And so you're, you're on a nine to one ratio there. That number explodes pretty fast when you do the math. And if you're asking a development officer to make 12 to 18 major gift asks a year, you know where you've got to be. And so they need all the help they can get and they do realize that, but it, the, the, it, you've got to sell that prospect a little bit too on those proactive referrals. I mean, you've got to have a nugget in there, you know, because clearly our prospect researcher saw something on that prospect that made them go, yeah, this is someone I need to send out. We've got to sell that piece to the development officer so that, you know, it's getting over that hump to just make that phone call or get out of their chair and go visit that person. That's That typically is the bigger struggle. Yeah, and, and I think maybe that's a segue into some of what we had a little pre-call where we were previewing some of our um, uh, upcoming uh, work at the intersection of data, interests, uh, really dynamically updating uh, CRM in a way that hasn't happened before in the sector. And I think you know, one of the things that really struck me about that conversation was just your focus on interests and passions. I, I think that there's, there's, in the reactive world that many of us are used to, it was all about, let me do my wealth screening, let me look at capacity, and that let me do cold outreach to eventually find out what they're interested in. And I think in the era of big data and social analytics and lead generation that we're now living in, we can start with interests and passions and then qualify for capacity and then make a next step. And, and that's really a huge leap 
it sounds simple, but, but structurally that's a big leap from doing the screening and then, and then assigning portfolios. Uh, you live the world of the cold portfolio. Uh, and I think a lot of what I'm hearing you say and what we've observed is how do we make sure that those, uh, those names are as warm as possible with as much context as possible to be able yeah. to quickly either move forward or disqualify. Yeah, and, and some of this is, if it, a lot of it is really efficiency. You know, you can talk about efficiency with a development officer to say who to call, who not to call, who to prioritize before another, but when you start thinking about passions and some of the opportunities we have here, we're, we're gonna launch here before too long a, a focused scholarship campaign. You know, we have 450,000 plus constituents in our system. Not that everybody is not important, but how do we focus on those folks that have a passion for scholarships so that we could start with those prospects first and you know, create a greater amount of organizational efficiency here. Not to say that um, you know, facilities or faculty support is not critically important, but you, you, know, you look at it, there's this, this micro and this macro opportunity across the board, and it's not just for an individual development officer or annual giving, it's, it's for the organization. But using those passion points, you know, because again, we, as, 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 a, as a fundraiser who spent time in a, a unit-based you know, college shop for the business school, I'm going in talking to people that I, you know, are most likely business grads that I'm going to talk about the business school with, and that's that's just not the approach, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, on that note, when you think about how the data and technology landscape has evolved, given your background on both the technology side, but also as a development officer and just as a consumer, right? I mean, using musician today would not have been possible ten years ago to try to learn yeah. guitar. We're obviously trying to activate some of those same trends via our work at Evertrue. Um, what is it like to be in your shoes in such a rapidly shifting technology landscape where in many cases you need to make investment decisions for systems that could last 10 or 20 years? How do you do that? How do you think about it? And I know you and your colleagues, you know, we've gotten to know Jimmy and your team and others, You've been really thoughtful and diligent about trying to research the space as much as possible, but it still seems like there's so much change, both within the advancement sector and then externally. Where's your head on head at on just sort of the status quo of the sort of technology strategy landscape? Yeah, so a lot to unpack there. I mean, for us, it's and I think we're in a world now where there's so much technology, there's so many uh, organizations out there. You kind of just have to pick something and, and just kind of dive in with a little bit of faith and a little bit of hope. Um, you got to you got to prove the case a little bit first. I mean, the two examples I give really quickly certainly ever true. We you know we've got seventy five users now. We started with ten or twelve though to kind of make the case right, and it was pretty easy to make that case once we got in with ten or twelve. We're a big we have a, a visualization platform here that's not specific to our industry. Same thing there. I kind of went out on my own and bought a license by myself and did a few things and showed it to our VP of development. And now we have, you know, 12 or 14 power users and 130 um, you know, end users for that platform. You kind of you gotta you gotta kind of find where your opportunities are and and, and I, I don't know, just start somewhere. But yeah, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this. You know, certainly the CRM landscape, the technology landscape to advancement, and you know, you guys at Evertrue with this philosophy of bringing the for-profit, you know, capabilities, thought process into to advancement into the not-profit, not-for-profit world. That's where we've got to be, right? I mean, our and it's as much about our our ability to do what we need to do, but also meeting the expectations of our end users, right? Because every one every one of our folks has an Android phone or an iPhone, and they expect our giving page to be just as easy to use, just as pretty, just as efficient, and that truly is a struggle. So now, you know, when we have partners like Evertrue that are building those things out, um, you, you, you're, you're kind of you're looking for those opportunities to enhance what you're doing, but also kind of add to the value of what, um, of, of where you're kind of lacking. And so, you know, on the CRM front, um, that's a, that's a, that's, you know, I think we're really, again, at the forefront here a little bit with these, um, you know, stepping into these modern CRMs 
Um, you know, those have been out there for many years now in the for-profit industry, but to see some of these entities pop up, um, you know, certainly Evertrue, but others that are building these out is really, really exciting. We're, we're definitely, I think, you know, it, certainly uh, leading edge, if not bleeding edge there on some of those things. But, you know, I've been telling my, my boss, the president here at the foundation that, you know, the, the conversation is what's, there's some decisions out there and you can make a decision for the next three to five years, or you can make it a decision for the next 10 years, right? And, and where do we want to be? Because neither one of those is a right or wrong answer, but um, it's really assessing, you know, part of that, I, I think we have an organization here that's, that's um, no, no organization is 100% change ready, but I think we're more change ready than most. And so, um, again, I tend to be the person that says, hey, let's turn on Microsoft Teams. Let's Let's start lighting that up and see who gravitates towards it and see what we do with it. You know, it's, I joke that I use kind of an organic approach, which is my organic approach, but it's kind of my code word for I just didn't have a plan. <laughs> but um, that's typically how that works. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, we've been hearing a common conversation around uh, Teams testing Slack or Microsoft Teams and yeah. having more collaboration and getting out of the, I got to send an attachment to 10 people with an email every single time and, and really being able to streamline communication. When you say that you're change ready, I, I literally had a conversation with somebody yesterday who said, my team is sort of getting whiplash from change. We've had too much change, um, but they need more change. And so how do you, why do you feel like you're change ready? What does that even mean? Um, any lessons that you might want to impart on, on your peers who are listening. Yeah, so so they are changed somewhat more change ready because of, I think the term you use is changed about a whiplash uh, because we keep bringing things online. And really in the last four to six months, I've, I've gotten feedback from my peers and leadership team that, you know, there's a lot of stuff we're turning on and lighting up. And, um, you know, we're, one of the ways we've addressed that is just very um, tangibly. We created, um, and actually she just celebrated her one year anniversary as of July 1. Um, a new role last July 1, uh, a technical training and process improvement manager. And uh, it's a staff member that's in information strategy in our area. Um, and she focuses on training for our technical tools, right? And we have you know, just seen a night and day change in kind of um, our end users' openness and certainly understanding of these tools. And so not everybody, not every organization has those resources, but we certainly felt strong of it, you know, Obviously, going into a, uh, an implementation here in the next, you know, probably 12 to 18 months, um, we had to have somebody in that position uh, that could really help us with that. And now, granted, her background is in that. She's been in our technical team, so she understands our environment. She knows how to train people. Um, I would say that's probably been one of the biggest, um, certainly in the last year, opportunities for us where we've seen the greatest growth and support from the organization because they have that person and the joke you know the joke now is we should write a jingle it's just call bonnie right because she's the person just pick up the phone and call if you got a question and it's it, it's been fantastic chris i am committing right now if you'd like to co-write a jingle called just call bonnie let's do it i'm down to give that a we'll shot get some cowboy chords going and we'll uh we'll, yeah, absolutely i'm on it we're gonna make that a follow-up coming out of today's conversation i think bonnie's really gonna appreciate it um but, but I think it's a great point, which is something we deal with all the time. It is one thing to go in and have an exciting presentation with a prospective Evertrue customer to be able to identify real challenges, whether it's mobile access or incomplete data or challenging collaboration, and then to be able to do a demo that shows a solution that we know works, okay? We know that it can work really well, uh, and then not to have it embraced and used at its fullest capacity. And I think that yeah. we're constantly trying to come up with ways that we can be more hands-on from a service perspective to really provide some of that technical training and coaching, but um, we can never be um, uh, in, in our current role an insider the way that Bonnie can be, you know, somebody who can probably literally roam the halls and, and help people out and, and, and do coaching and training. And, and for all the help videos and documentation and support that we can provide as a vendor partner, it is invaluable um, to us and, and to partners like you to have that internal ownership to help maximize your return on investment, to be able to go from 110 proactive referrals to 330 proactive referrals. Those are the metrics we want to be able to speak to for every single one of our customers, not 
usage reports or how many people access the platform. I get that that's a leading indicator, but I want to know about results. And I don't just want to know proactive referrals. I want to know pipeline, proposals, revenue closed. And I know that we're going to be able to get there uh, as we continue to advance. And not to turn this into a, a commercial for, for Evertrue, but, you know, Maggie has just been a, you guys have been our model for this customer success model of an organization. Um, she's been with us every step of the way, asking us questions, because with Bonnie as well and, and with, with Maggie, you have to meet people where they're at, right? Um, you know, a, a group training session is great when you're starting to, you know, build change management and train for tools. But everybody's use case is a little bit different until you can kind of meet them where they're at. So Maggie does that with us. She hears where we're doing and what we're doing and how we're doing it and, and helps us apply that. And I think that's a great opportunity for us. And, you know, again, the other piece here, there's a little bit of a benefit, you know, we're competing with the Apples and the Googles and the Amazons, right? But there's a little bit of a benefit to that too. When you think about change management, because, you know, we all have, you know, phones with kind of the app ecosystem on it, right? And you may go to bed on Monday night and on Tuesday morning, wake up and that this app you've used every day, whether it's, you know, Facebook or whatever it is, could be drastically changed or the icons are over here, they're different. So to that end, I think people maybe are a little bit more open to change and understand that that's kind of the world we live in. So, you know, Hope is not a strategy is what I always say, but I, my hope is that that's helping us as we start to jump into these more modern technologies. And we work with platforms like Evertrue where you're lighting up new functionality and it's people don't, I just, there's no way for us to keep up with that. You know, when you add that enrichment tab, just click the tab and look at it, right? I mean, you shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to put together an hour, you know, um, training session here internally for someone to kind of figure out how to use that. It needs to make sense. It needs to be intuitive, of course, but um, I think that's just the world we live in, whether it's in our organizations or in our daily lives and the personal tools we use. I think that's a good segue to next conversation. We are releasing a new part of our platform called TrueView, which is the first dynamically updating donor profile. Instead of one-off data appends, we want to be able to look at the 450,000 Oklahoma State constituents and that data, who they are, it's constantly changing in the background. You can't get at all of that information, but it is possible to get at more of it than ever before. And so we are uh, investing in biographic updates, career updates, interest updates, uh, and in allowing ongoing uh, improvements to that data, new sources. And so Chris has been participating in that beta. It's very early, but I think that you know, the punchline is it is becoming more and more possible to get at donor interests much more quickly based on digital behavior, based on purchasing behavior. So instead of guessing what people are interested in or using all that discovery officer time to try to qualify their interests, you can start with their interests and then figure out if there's a philanthropic uh, uh, potential. And so we just were reviewing a little bit of that uh, earlier today. But when you think about some of what we talked about, when you think about the ability to um, get at some of those really micro interests. You were just sharing some of the, the specific problem areas on campus. We had not planned this, but just the really specific programs or funding needs that are just not easy to query the database and come up with a list for that can be big drains on, on time that perhaps can be accelerated through some of what we've been discussing with TrueView. So we'd love some real-time examples of just specific funding priorities that that, that are, are hard to, uh, to attack in the absence of some of the big data uh, potential we've been talking about. Absolutely. And it's, 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 it's not just these kind of specific, you know, maybe, uh, you know, potentially smaller opportunities. But, you know, for us, an organization, we're uh, going to launch a brand new, uh, the McKnight Center for Performing Arts. This is a $70 million building. We've never had anything like this before in Stillwater at OSU. Well, when we were asked to start fundraising for this five years ago, we didn't have any previous donors, right? Like there, there, there was no funds for this. We didn't have a, you know, certainly a, a history of performing arts support here at really at that level at the university. And so, you know, it's not hard to find people who are passionate about the performing arts, right? And so with, with tools like this now and to be able to, for something that big, I mean, that was a huge, you know, near nine figure type opportunity. Um, you know, you talk about our ability to really hone in and provide a great list of leads to the, the, the multiple development officers going out and fundraising on, on, our, on the behalf of that project. But then, you know, we've got, we've got some great one-off programs here. Our, our uh, first cowgirl, Ann Hargis, who is President Hargis's wife, has um, been just as instrumental. The first cowgirl.
First cowgirl, yeah. She's the first cowgirl, right? So, um, just to make it clear for everybody, that is the the, the spouse of the the president. Correct. Yeah, Anne is uh, President Burns Hargis's uh, uh, wife, and and he affectionately refers to her as the first cowgirl. And I think that moniker will will certainly stick. But um, she's really passionate about certainly health. We've got one of the healthiest campuses in the country. Uh, but we should, we, she's also got a program that she started called Pete's Pet Posse. So. Pete, Pistol Pete is our, our, our mascot uh, because we're the cowboys and cowgirls, but um, Pete's Pet Posse is really um, kind of a service animal program, and so it's, it's, it's pretty intense. I mean, you've got to go through it. It's a multiple-week process, but, you know, she's really passionate about that, and, you know, while I think there's some great opportunity there, it may not be something we can dedicate a full-time fundraiser to or a full-time headcount, but, you know, she has great connections. She's a lot, she knows lots of great people. If we can really, really easily provide her a list of people that we've identified because of interests, you know, through Evertrue, um, that have supported, you know, the Humane Society or have a passion for dogs or service animals, that, the time to, uh, from, Figuring out how we're going to support that and maybe grow that uh, program has just shrunk, you know, significantly. And our ability to give her a list of names that even she could call to say, hey, I understand you might have a passion in this area. Let me tell you a bit about this program that I'm passionate about. And it just it makes that process so much smoother. Yeah, no, I think we are we are moving out of uh, capacity first discovery into interest first discovery. And it is not just technology that enables that. And I do appreciate the kind words you've shared about us, but it's not just the technology. It is having a strategy that even starts with caring about what people are interested in, having a communications and content strategy that is focused on um, sharing relevant stories, relevant photos, relevant videos that allow people to self-identify, and then having a prospect development system in place where there are people standing by waiting to not only understand engagement, add the capacity layers, get it into discovery portfolios, and then make sure that those visits are being had. And I think that is a model that is still early. I really do believe Oklahoma State's at the forefront of it. Um, it sounds so simple. Why is it so hard for the industry to get there? Because well, we haven't had the tools, right? I mean... Um... Yeah, maybe it's part tools, but how do we make sure that we're not letting our existing systems drive our strategy, but, but instead try to set our strategy and then build the technology stack that supports it. Well, it, it, it's about, and, and it kind of comes down at the organizational level here about embracing, you know, these new opportunities, these new tools, this new perspective of really focus, you know, here at a university, a, a very tried and true model, you know, education, you know, not thinking first about the college from which you graduated, the uh, engineering school, you know, because our teams are structured here to really support these colleges and you know if you know you've got to report to the dean every week on what's going on you know so we've got to embrace kind of this holistic perspective of how we're engaging our prospects and donors we've got to educate faculty and staff and our internal folks here that you know if you can really get someone passionate about you know more than just one specific thing you know, you can really open the doors to a greater giving and a larger amount of giving. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. And, you know, we've told this story dozens of times, but this McKnight Center, right, we didn't really have a great base. So what did we start doing? We started posting to Facebook, right, uh, the announcement about the McKnight Center. And, you know, this is two and three years ago that, you know, the, the, the two years ago, I think the lead gift came from the McKnight's. And you Jacob, you know, it didn't take long for him to go, well, let me pull that list of who those people were that have been engaging with that post. And then I'm going to start sharing with those, with those development officers. And that, it, it, it makes, it, it's, a pretty sim, it's a pretty simple process once you really think about it. But, you know, we also have to think from the mindset, and we, we try to do this here as an organization, but everyone here is a fundraiser. You may not have it in your title. You may not be out meeting with um, prospects and donors. Everybody here is a fundraiser. And a great example are, are the social media media manager we had at the time when we were when we were launching McKnight Center. You know, this was the conversation I had with him. I said, "You're a fundraiser. We, you, we need to be pushing out content here, certainly from the foundation, but also with our partners across the street uh, on campus that allows us to engage with the right people for the right projects we're, we're, we're wanting to you know fund and support. And so you know that to see that kind of light bulb go off is 
that, that's a really exciting thing because we're, we're all fundraisers here in some form or fashion. Well, and I think that we are going to see the same shift in the communications realm that you've witnessed and been a part of in the, in the evolution from prospect research to prospect development, prospect management, reactive to proactive. The same evolution has happened in the for-profit world as it relates to social media content communications. It is starting to happen in yeah. advancement. The social media person could be your number one source of major gift pipeline if activated in the right way and if aligned with a prospect development team. And when we go around the country and meet uh, different leaders, it is not common for the social media team and the prospect development team, if there is one, to collaborate. And when you can get that collaboration going, that's when you can really build that referral engine to the front line. You know, and it's just, you know, we talked about this, you know, the true view, right? I mean, I think the example of we, I, I mentioned earlier uh, before we started the video was, you know, how great, you know, I used to sit as a development officer, you know, in my car, my rental car in Dallas or wherever I was with that printed off profile of that prospect. So I could kind of go, okay, accounting grad 72, here's maybe some areas they've given to. Imagine being able to do that, right, on your device, your phone, your iPad before you go on that call and as you're starting to open the door you see that they've liked the you know the McKnight Center post or you know the fact that uh, you know a Pete's Pet Posse page right and to be able as a development officer because you've got to be adaptable and flexible on the fly to walk you know you may have gone in there with some preconceived idea of what that prospect might be interested in but now you've got another thing to grab onto right and that becomes a really really powerful tool and really timely of course. You, you just wrote a script for a commercial that we should film that involves you in a rental car in Dallas and a, and a printout of a donor profile uh, and ends with, with where we are today, you know, where we are, are really starting to, to get to, which is having great information at your fingertips, having dynamic real-time updates, being able to understand interests, and doesn't mean it's the only thing they're interested in and that you, you, you still need human qualification and real conversations to advance the discussion, but being able to, to have a strong starting point is, is, is key. And so, you know, on that note, as we kind of zoom out a little bit, when you think about advancement, when you think about Oklahoma State, you know, when you think about higher ed, the headlines, there's a lot of pressure right now on multiple fronts. Um, and I think more responsibility than ever, especially in public institutions, for philanthropy to help fill uh, gaps that, that seem to be appearing more and more uh, acutely every day. What's your view of advancement? What's your view of higher ed? Take away technology, data, all of this. What is the conversation that is being had at Oklahoma State right now when you think about your role at, in the state and, and on the national landscape? Yeah, that, oh boy, a loaded question. I mean, it's certainly for us, and not that it's not impactful for everybody, but you're right, as a public institution or supporting a public institution and, and you know, seeing that state funding uh, start to, to, to go down, we, we hope that continues to build the case for the need for us here. And, you know, and it, it, it actually, you know, some of the things we talk about often takes us a little bit out of advancement. And I've had this conversation a lot recently of, you know, we've done some things over the years here that may not necessarily be the, the true north of, of the foundation or, or strictly in the fundraising context. But, you know, because we're at least here, we're a separate entity and we've got great resources, you know, we can do some things that help raise the profile of the university and support the university. But, you know, the, the biggest challenge is, you know, you know, the higher ed is, is that kind of tried and true uh, institution and in, in really trying to bring this kind of innovative for-profit perspective in our institution here certainly has been a struggle, but, um, you know, the proof is in the pudding and finding and using these tools to help, you know, our deans see that our development officers are more successful and more efficient. Um, that's a big part of the ability to turn that on for for us and move forward. But, you know, I, there's a great TED talk, uh, a guy by the name of Dan Pilata that I've watched a couple of times over the years. And I, I would say this is something that I think about, not just for advancement or higher ed, but certainly for nonprofits. And, and a big part of that talk really is, you know, not focusing so much on, you know, the cost to raise a dollar, right? You know, um, you need to be aware of that. Don't get me wrong, especially as nonprofits and being great stewards of the resources we've been given. But, 
You know, I think that the, the, the question he asked in there, would you pay 50 cents on the dollar knowing that 12 or 15 cents is probably a targeted cost to raise a dollar? Would you pay 50 cents on the dollar to cure cancer? And I think a lot of us would say, yeah, that's, I'd say that's a pretty fair trade-off. And, and not, not living in that bubble of trying to be as lean as possible because that, you can't really be that lean and, and, and be, um, you know, make change at that level we need to and be, um, you know, transformative. And um, it, it takes resources and people that are willing to, 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 to take those challenges um, and be innovative. And sometimes that, that takes a little more resources. And so I think for me, I know that's a big part of it. And we've been, we've been lucky here for the most part to be able to step out and grab some resources. But there's, of course, more that we, we want to be doing that we could be doing. But, um, it, you, you know, we talk about donors and, and they're, they're, um, it's kind of investment philanthropy, right? And you know you you you've got to put in some resources to get a return on an investment, and I think I think we're going that way where people understand that we do we can't just be seven cents on the dollar to you know to to really do great things and do those in innovative innovative ways. So I think that's changing a little bit, but I'd love to see that change a little bit faster. And it, it's not about doing away with that understanding of a cost to raise a dollar. Your board doesn't necessarily want to hear that, but we also want to do great things in great ways. Yeah, look, I think the question is, when you have 450,000 constituents, okay, with our current construct, how many are actively managed? Probably less than 1%, right? Let's just be, uh, oh, you know, yeah. well less than 1%. Um, if you could manage 2% or 3% or 4%, that would require new technology, new people, new roles, and so forth. Uh, but if it allows you to scale the impact that you can have for... Uh, the state of Oklahoma or your student population more broadly, um, that's a conversation that I think is worth having. Do you feel like some of the challenges, the macro challenges around uh, higher ed, student loan crisis, um, you know, some of the, the pressures around state funding, does that actually create maybe a better environment to be more innovative? I mean, does it create, I don't want to say desperation, but maybe a little bit of desperation, not necessarily at Oklahoma State, but when you think about your peers in the industry and you think about the higher ed landscape in 2019 versus uh, 15 years ago when you first got started, does it feel different now? I think it does. I mean, it, it, it has to because the, the, the resources continue to, to decline, right? And certainly with the Great Recession, we saw that kind of drop even faster. Um, in some places, it's ticking back up to potentially 2000 or pre-2007, 2008 levels. But, it, 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 you know, selfishly, it does create a, a business case for the need for, you know, fundraising. Unfortunately, you know, it's so great and the need is, 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 is you know, it, it expands even beyond, and I think I touched on this a second ago, fundraising. It's like, you know, we, we put on a TEDx here, you know, for, for a couple of years. Um, uh, the foundation did. I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily our true north, but our university didn't have the resources or the time or the energy to do that. And so it, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because they just, you know, and, and I, I think we're probably not the only, you know, private foundation that supports a, a university. You know, a lot of times the folks on campus think that we just have all these resources. And, and, and while we are very fortunate, we do have some great resources. It's not enough to do everything that needs to be done. And so, again, sometimes that eats into you know, what really is our true north, our ability to do great fundraising for the university, and you start to tack on some of these other things, and, it, you know, it's that, I think, death by a thousand cuts is the saying, where you wake up one day, and it's like, you know, 40% of your time was spent fundraising, and as, as a fundraiser in the business school, my office, when I was in the business school, was actually in the actual business school, right? Well, they moved us all out of, uh, out, out of the colleges, because you know, I had to chaperone, you know, a scholarship trip one time, which is really not fundraising, right? It's that other duties as assigned. And so really being able to hone in and focus on what we're here to do, it, it can be more challenging because there's so many things that need to be done that just, you know, the campus doesn't have those resources. I think as we conclude today, I did want to ask you a little bit just around the importance of, of mentorship in your career path. When you think about mentors uh, or advice you might have for folks that are listening today that aspire to be in leadership positions, um, sounds like you've benefited a bunch from getting exposure to many different parts of an advancement shop, which I think allows you to think yeah. more holistically about how we're, we're trying to build for the future. 
Um, but do you have any mentors maybe you want to give shout outs to or when you think about peers at other advancement shops who you rely on or, or really respect, um, anybody come to mind? Yeah, and we've been, you know, um, I'm always a bit apologetic because my career in fundraising advancement has been all here at OSU, right? So I've been it's kind of sheltered. Um, you know, the good news, bad news, we are in a, in a business, in an industry where there is some turnover. So we've had great folks come through the shop over the years and I, you know for the uh, I've stayed connected to a lot of those a guy by the name of David Lois was here for a couple years went to Rice and is now uh, doing some things on his own Ken Sigmund was our vice president of development for several years that I learned a ton from and it's to me it's it's you know it's certainly finding the people in your shop that are because not everybody is necessarily great at everything but really picking out the, the, the folks that are great at some of the things you feel like you need to get good at you know um, there's a self-awareness piece there of going, okay, what, what do I need to, to get better at to get to whatever place I want to go and really seeking out and finding people that are good at those things. But, I, you know, I, I've got my, I'm here in my office, I've got, we're big into strengths finder here and it's like learner and input are like my top two. So I'm always asking questions. I'm always trying to figure things out. I'm always learning things like the guitar, you know, things like that because that's what really motivates me. And I think that's been a benefit because um, I just I like to ask questions and learn how things work and you know what people's perspectives are and you know just those conversations have been really invaluable to me over the years. Um, being willing to listen, uh, you know, the joke is you know God gave you two ears and a mouth and you're supposed to use them, uh, you know, in that same uh, in that same ratio. So um, I struggle with that at times, but uh, but it's been fun to be here in a place where you know, and quite frankly. It, when I got here in 2004, we were a much smaller shop and we've really grown up over the last 10 or 15 years and I've been able to do that with the organization. And so I've certainly done some things, we've certainly done some things that probably weren't uh, you know, best practices at the time, but you can learn a lot by not doing something the right way. So um, I think I certainly have benefited from that myself, but it's been fun. You know, you and I talk quite a bit, Brent. That's, it's just great to get out and hear different perspectives and people that are passionate about the industry in which we work. Um, you know, I, we talk to, because of some of our CRM conversations, we talked to Mark Koenig out at Oregon State, who's an incredibly smart guy. Uh, and I, we've learned a lot from, uh, actually <laughs> grew up here in Oklahoma, which I found out. And um, just, it, it's just, there's, this is such a great, uh, I say business, but it's a, it's a great um, industry to work in because, you know, people don't do this that are not altruistic, right? They, they have a passion for serving the greater good. Um, and it, it, you, people are, and the other thing too, is we've, I've found over the years and we do this all the time, you know, we're not really, I mean, we're competing for philanthropic dollars. I get it, but we're not really competing each other the way Coke and Pepsi are competing, right? So people are open books. They'll share with you anything you want them to share with you. And it's a great way to, to learn and, and um, you know, improve upon the way things are happening. And so it's, it's I, I, like I said at the start, I, I really kind of stumbled into this, this industry, this business. I, I came here because I was an OSU grad and I thought it would be a fun job, but I'm here 15 years later because I believe in, you know, certainly the mission of higher education. Um, Oklahoma State University is a land grant. Um, we still have so many first generation college kids or kids that come here to college. Uh, it's really easy to get up in the morning and serve that kind of cause. And so um, I, it's just been a lot of fun. It's certainly, we've certainly had our challenges over the years, but um, uh, you know, we've learned a lot along the way. And as we watch organizations like uh, Evertrue and, and you know, see Salesforce right, get into this space, it's really, really exciting to see that kind of investment. That's a segue to my last question, which is we've got an audience of advancement professionals who are listening today. Um, make the case for Stillwater. You, you sort of just did, but are you hiring? Are you growing? Um, you know, should somebody Google your jobs page right now? Uh, why don't you do your best Oklahoma State commercial? I think it's been pretty good so far, but any exciting moments uh, in time that, that folks should be really uh, focused on? Well, I'm obviously very biased. So not only, uh, not only did I go to school, I actually grew up here in Stillwater. So this is my hometown. So I'm, I'm very partial to the community. It's a great college town. Um, you know, we're doing great things here at the foundation. I, this place has been so much fun to be a part of because um, uh, the way we typically phrase it is we, 
we take very seriously the work we do here, uh, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. We like to joke around and have a good time. We all spend way too much time at work, right, to not enjoy it a little bit. And so, um, we, we, you know, I think the other day we, we were doing a presentation and, um, you know, just teasing people and having a good time. We've got that kind of environment here, but we, we're always hiring. We have open positions now. Um, you know, uh, we may, I don't know if we'll have to cut this later, but, um, and it's not, it's not, um, our current foundation president who's been here 15 years, uh, has announced that he's retiring. So we're going to be, we'll be hiring for that position here very soon and hopefully very quickly. Um, so that would be a great opportunity for an aspiring, uh, advancement leader out there to come and lead a, you know, 150 person shop that's raising, you know, uh, 15 years ago, we were probably raising 50 to 60 million dollars a year. Uh, right now, we're hitting 130 to 150, depending on you know how many big uh, eight-figure-plus gifts we're getting. But there's a lot of great opportunity here. Uh, Burns Hargis, who's been our president here the last 12 years, um, you know, and Brent, you've been here, but you know, even the campus physically has been transformed since he's been here. New buildings, a new business building. Um, it's just we say this a lot here. It's a great time to be a cowboy. Um, you know, we, over the weekend, um, Matt Wolf, uh, you know, in his third or fourth professional start, won his first PGA Tour event, was like the fourth youngest person to ever do that. Um, we had A.D. Franch, who was a cowgirl soccer player here so, a few years ago. She was on the Women's uh, World Cup team. Um, and there's, there's one other that I'm forgetting, but, oh, uh, Isaac Likely, who's our, a point guard on our basketball team, was on the under-19 FIFA uh, basketball, uh, won gold uh, in that, and so uh, it's fun to see a lot of that stuff going on. It's a you know get to got Saturdays in the fall are a lot of fun too. You get to sit around and hang out with your sixty thousand of your best friends here at uh, Boone Pickens Stadium and watch a pretty good football team too. So good stuff. Did I sell enough? Yeah, I'm sold. I mean, I want to come back. I will say it can be a hot place to go for a run once in a while. I wasn't ready for that on my last trip there, but I will be better. Pre- prepared uh, next time and I think <laughs> it's a little toasty this time of year yeah in uh, you know but in in conclusion it is uh, it is very easy to just do the same old thing and and I think depending on the culture and the context there isn't always incentive to try to really push the envelope push the boundaries um, entrepreneurs uh, in this sector uh, myself included, Evertrue included, but other companies and emerging vendors that are out there um, need institutions that are willing to try something new, willing to take a little bit of a risk. Uh, and so for that, we thank you uh, and we look forward to continuing to push the boundaries. Any concluding thoughts? Otherwise, uh, we, we will wrap. Well, and just the kind of the parting shot here is I know you and I are talking about the things we're doing here, but I am such a small part of that success. You know, I've got a, a group, of, a team of people, uh, certainly peers here, but really in information strategy, the area that I oversee. Um, I, and, and there's times when they should, but they, I very rarely hear no. Uh, I, there's a great group of, of folks on our team here that always find a way to, 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 to rise to the occasion or the challenge or this crazy idea that I might have. And so when you come to them and say, we're going to try this new platform called Evertrue, I, I almost never get this no. Like right? they're always willing to try some, and so that that speaks to our kind of organizational culture here. But it's a lot of fun. We've really enjoyed watching you know you all at Evertrue uh, certainly grow up, um, and we're excited to see what you guys, how you all are pushing our our industry forward because um, we need more of that for-profit, hey, we don't need to do this the same way we've done this the last 20 years mentality, and it's it's exciting to see that. So Great stuff. Thanks for coming on the journey, uh, Chris. And for everybody listening, uh, please subscribe on iTunes or your podcast of choice. Uh, we're going to continue to have great conversations with folks like Chris uh, in the coming months, and it's just been a really fun way for us to uh, get to learn uh, and shape um, our perspective on the sector, the challenges, the opportunities. Uh, and so without further ado, we're going to sign off from today's Raise podcast. Thanks. Thanks.